This is Beamish Avery, and I'm here with a special weekend edition for you guys' bonus. I feel like we are about to really enter, being that this is the full moon in um, Lunar Eclipse in Capricorn, I already have given you guys one episode. In this episode, I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of more information when it comes to not the astrology aspect, but when it comes to society and the rights and the restrictions and the uproars and the things that are happening all around our country. Because of lack of leadership, because of lack of accountability, because of lack of self responsibility and accountability, we are in a very, very dangerous, dangerous place. And I know that there are many people who are going to be celebrating, doing whatever they want because whatever reasons, it's their personal choice. They can do whatever they want. That is true. Do whatever you want. Just understand the impact that you not doing what's best for others has on our society and in communities. When we are speaking about, um, as I spoke about the astrological aspects and the things that are about to get intense and all of these things, I also feel like it's very important that you guys understand what I'm speaking about when it comes to political agendas. I want to make it very clear. I do not care what your partisanship is. I do not care if you are Democrat. I do not care if you're liberal. I do not care if you're progressive. I do not care if you are Republican. I don't give a damn what you are. For me, it's always people over politics. Your political views matter not if it doesn't uphold the most important part of our society, which is the people. Okay, so keep all that to yourself because I don't care. Um, I respect everyone's choice to choose whatever it is that they want and they believe. I'm all about facts. You can't converse me to believe in what you believe and I am not trying to converse you or coerce you into um, believing what I believe because I don't care if you believe it or not. It is about the truth, facts, right? And so that is what I am going to share with you guys. I feel like it's very important with COVID being so rapid, the way our government has dropped the ball, the way our um, local and city officials have been fighting against our governors to just listen, to see the facts. We still have a lieutenant governor who is absolutely an idiot. And if anyone's listening to me and that's your family member, he's an idiot. And he is absolutely despicable. And I'm sorry if it's offensive to you, but I'm not sorry for what I'm saying. Because if it was my grandfather, if it was my dad, I'd tell him the same thing. You are absolutely ridiculous. Okay? When it comes to humanity... You can never put money over the lives of the people who keep the money flowing. You can never choose economy over the people that make the economy run. And so we're in this space where there is this unnecessary debate almost so of like you know it's not that serious we don't need to listen to the scientists we don't need to listen to the health advisors Dr. Fossey doesn't know what he's talking about blah 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 but you are just a redneck lieutenant governor who is completely disconnected from reality now back into facts out of my feelings okay we are literally seeing thousands of cases every single day. And I can guarantee you that the numbers that we are seeing are not correct. 
Not saying that people are inflating the numbers, but I am saying that the numbers are not accurate because not all of the people who are affected are accounted for. And not all the people who are battling this thing have gone to the hospitals. A lot of people have gone home, died at home. A lot of people have died randomly in the streets. A lot of people have falling victim to this virus that are not accounted for. So when I say that the numbers are not accurate, I'm not saying that it's not a true threat. I'm saying that the threat is more intense than we know. And the dangerous part of that is you have people who are literally arguing the validity of this virus. One person dying from something that can't be prevented or cured or treated is too many. And we have a personal responsibility to do what it is that we need to do to make sure we're safe, but also make sure that we're not putting the health of those who are in fragile states or who are not in fragile states in any type of danger because it can't be treated, prevented or cured. And you don't know the long lasting effects this thing has on your life. Now, I am someone who has personally been affected by this disease, this virus. Okay, it has definitely taken a lot of people that I care about randomly. No, these people were not sick. No, these people were not elderly. No, these people were not um, having underlying issues. No, these people were not high risk according to the data or according to the information that was given that determines if you are high risk, etc. Okay. After the demise of our, our, of the people that I care about and other people's family members that did not fit the statistics of what they said, um, they discovered that everybody can get this, which is something I've already known. Everybody has already known. People with any kind of marble sense knows that a virus does not discriminate against who it attacks, right? So we're in this space where we are now in a place where tensions are definitely growing and things are getting very high because the numbers are increasing and the local and city officials have very limited ability to do anything. They have very limited ability to restrict the way they need to. The only thing our governor has done is forced mask, right? He's put a mandate for mask, even though there's no penalty if you don't wear the mask, which is completely counterproductive, but whatever, okay? So this is months too late. We opened months too early. We did not follow the necessary recommendations and precautions. And now we're in this place where we are watching our communities fall by the wayside. And that's just the only way to put it. People are dropping like flies and it's falling on the incompetence of the leadership. Now, with that being said, yes, the government is acting slow. Yes, there is no particular treatment cure or recommendation for a recovery regimen to help people actually recover from this thing and heal from this thing. And no, we have no real, real, real estimation of when it'll be over. Okay. So then the other question is personal responsibility. America is like a bunch of toddlers. You have 
some that are responsible that listens listen to the parents and then you have some that just choose to do whatever they want to do and they're not disciplined so they're the unruly ones who are told in a calm manner not to do something but they still do it and there's no repercussions and you may take away some gadgets you may take away and to me mandating a mask is like taking away someone's iphone or taking away someone's phone when i grew up there was no punishment of that sort it was you do what you're told or you get your ass beat okay but that's hey and that works for me that worked for all of my family that worked for all of us you know so you could definitely tell the ones who were actually disciplined and the ones who were kind of coddled you know and, and just given too much of an option when they will not do the right thing so here we are in this space where our numbers are and if you notice all of the states who has a really really bad increase are the ones where the governors are republican and their focus was always economy and they opened too soon didn't follow precautions and now the rate is uncontrollable we're at a space right now where it is no way to reel it back in other than to shut things down because it is uncontrollable and it's at a rate where it has over capacitated it has put our hospitals at a capacity that it's almost at a space where it's unable to be attained this means more deaths because we don't have room and it also means that there's no treatment already so we're actually um, running on low when it comes to trying to figure something out in the meantime we have dropped the ball and then we have people who are in this space now who are like this is an infringement of my rights you can't force me to not go to the bar you cannot force me to go out and you can't force me to wear a mask you can't force me to not be in crowds. You can't force me to not have parties. You can't force me, force me, force me. And anyone who is familiar with history, I would hope that, and it's obvious that a lot of people are not. It's obvious that people are so disconnected from what the effects of what a government could do are, opposed to what the government can't do. It's very obvious, right? And so I'm gonna go through the uh, amendment rights for you, but the, one of the most important ones that I wanna speak about first is when it comes to a government making a decision to protect communities, they have every right to restrict certain elements of what you view as your freedom. Because your freedom is causing an issue amongst the community. So when we speak about people suing the governors and all this for mandating masks. Now, these are the very people who say it's pro-choice, I mean, pro-life. I'm pro-life, pro-life, pro-life. But people are dying by the droves because of a virus that can't be contained. And your lack of self-accountability is causing more deaths. How is that pro-life? How is that pro-life how is that solidifying your view of all lives are mattering how I'm, I'm confused on that okay and the logic behind that is asinine so when you're speaking about can the courts can the supreme court can the governors can they do this yes they can when you go back to look at the most relevant court decision that was made in today's time we're speaking about 
Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905. Okay, in 1905, the Supreme Court um, ruled to uphold the Constitution in a state law requiring compulsory vaccinations against smallpox. The court stated that upon the principle of self-defense of paramount necessity, a community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic of disease which threatens the safety of other members. The court explicitly rejected the claim that liberty, under quotes, is under the Constitution. Under the Constitution includes the right of individuals to make decisions about their own health in instances where those decisions could endanger others. But the court also made it very clear that the restrictions imposed by the government to control the diseases must have a real or substantial relation to protecting public health. So they cannot go by enforcing vaccinations on people that are in no real danger of this disease or virus. So under this particular standard, there is absolutely no doubt that a quarantine, which is actually pretty normal when you look at the pandemics that have happened in the past, Shelter in place and closure requirements are constitutional as a way of stopping the spread of COVID, even though they are restricting parts of what you view as your freedom. So while you do have the right to go places and you do have the right to do things, you do not have that right when it is an infringement upon other people's safety or health. Clearly, COVID is a threat to communities everywhere, globally. So your idea of what liberty is and what is being restricted is going to absolutely hold no weight when it comes to the thousands and thousands of people who have died because of this situation. And when we're speaking about American history, 4th of July High, When we're speaking about American history, quarantine orders have been upheld as valid procedures um, of the police power by state and local governments for a very long time. Not long after the Revolutionary War, Philadelphia imposed a quarantine to stop the spread of of yellow fever. In 1799, Congress by statute recognized the power of states to impose quarantines. In 1926, the Supreme Court ruled that a state in the exercise of its police power may establish quarantines against humans or animals or plants. And then most recently in 2016, a federal district court in New Jersey upheld a quarantine order for a nurse who had returned from Africa after treating Ebola patients. So even though the power of quarantine is not unlimited, Courts should invalidate orders that do not have a real and substantial relation to public health. In 1900, for example, a federal district court declared unconstitutional quarantine order in San Francisco to stop the spread of bombonic plague because it was clear it is made to operate against the Chinese population only and was based on racism, not public health needs. So at this stage, when we're speaking about COVID, 
after a week when COVID was only second to heart disease as the leading cause of death in the United States, courts unquestionably should uphold orders for quarantine, shelter in place, and closure of non-essential businesses because all are designed to stop the transmission of a highly communicable disease that if left unchecked, will will absolutely overwhelm the healthcare system and take the lives of so many people, which we already know. We see that. It's happened. These orders are constitutional even when they preclude people from assembling for religious worship. People have filed so many lawsuits um, wishing to gather for religious services, saying that their first amended right to gather. But the Supreme Court has made it very clear that there is no exception to general laws for religion. Moreover, if people gather in large groups for this or any other purpose, there is a risk of spreading COVID-19. But this does not mean that the government can do whatever it wants to do in the name of stopping the spread of the disease. There is always a danger that government might overuse its power as an excuse for unnecessary restrictions on freedom. This has occurred during our current crisis in countries, including Hungary, which canceled elections and Thailand and Jordan, which have restricted speech critical of the government. Now that is an abuse of power. In the United States, a number of states have adopted regulations preventing abortions, including medically induced abortions that involve no surgical procedure at all. It is hard to see how these restrictions have a real and substantial relationship to stopping the spread of COVID. And as opposed to attempts to use a crisis as a pretext for imposing additional limits on abortion, courts will most likely uh, vote against that because that is not that's unlawful. Courts would probably look skeptically on banning a religious service if it involved people standing in their cars or in a parking lot. So if you're driving through service and you're watching it like a drive through movie, then those gatherings don't present any public health threat since they do not involve interpersonal contact. So you can get in your cars, drive into the parking lot and y'all can now park together and then there'll be somebody uh, standing in front of a, a pulpit in the parking lot on a screen or whatever and preaching to you if that's what you want. But there has to be measures in place that can guarantee that people will not be in close vicinity with each other and it does not put the risk of other people in danger. Most recently, we had a family who just went and wanted to have a 30th birthday party. And what happened? They had a 30th birthday party. 18 members have been infected, including their grandfather, who was not there, who is now on life support. So you have to think about more than yourself. It is not just about you. It is not just about um, uh, restricting you because they don't want you to do something. It's not all about you. In this particular instance, it's not about you at all. It is about the community. We have to understand that there are some very, 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 very important benefits to these restrictions. And you constantly stating you shouldn't have to wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask. If you have health issues that cause you to not be able to wear a mask and you shouldn't be out in this anyway. If you have a hard time breathing with a mask on, that means you have a hard time breathing without the mask on and you should not be out anyway. But in an instance where you have to be out and you are choosing not to wear a mask, you do not have a right 
to not wear a mask when it is an infringement upon other people's health. You are causing other people to be put at risk because you don't want to wear a mask because it makes you uncomfortable. No, no, that's not okay. So it's just like someone saying, well, I got a right to, to, um, raise my fist and punch, punch in the air. I can punch in the air. You're right. You can do whatever you want to do. You can punch in the air. You can, you can wave your, uh, get a stick and swing it in the air. You can do all of that. But when it comes to where it's so close that you're waving this stick in the face of someone else that could put them in danger, that's an violation. It's the same thing with health. We're fighting a, a invisible demon right now. And the fact that people are choosing to not put other people first is so so ridiculous to me like I really don't understand the logic behind it because how can you possibly try to justify it being okay when you know that we're at a very 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 critical time right now thousands of cases each day People dying by the droves. In a week's time, you're losing 100 plus people in one county alone. That's too many people. That's too much. Most people don't have 100 family members. So it's at this point, as I stated, guys, things are going to get very intense. People are going to people are going to be bucking the system in a way because that is what the the energy is, is calling for people to fight against what they feel they're needing to fight against. But the thing is, if you think you're gonna buck against the system and you're gonna fight against what is really right, we're entering in a time where it's about community, it's about people, it's about joining people together and what works for society. And if you're bucking against that system, you're gonna be bucked back. And that's gonna make it even more intense. It's gonna put us at even more of a risk and it's gonna put us in a space where You know, we're just in a bad place. So with that being said, I want to go over briefly what your amendments are. What is the, what does it mean? What are your amendment rights? There are 27 of them. Most people don't know them. Okay. You only hear about the second amendment. You hear about the first amendment. You might hear about, you know, the 13th amendment people have just now started talking about, which they still don't fully understand. So it's people who are just throwing things out here who have no understanding of what they're talking about. And it's very important for you to understand for yourself what these things are, because if you understand what the amendments are, and you understand that they're put in place for certain reasons, even though I'm not even going to get started on how it doesn't benefit certain people. But the fact of the matter is we're going to look at what the amendments are. We're going to look at this in a constitutional way and we're going to view this despite my personal feelings. Remember, we are talking about facts. This is what is in place. So it's important for you to know what they are before you try to fight against it or before you try to build an argument against it. Understanding what it is, understanding how it affects you, and understanding how it falls within the law, within your city, within your government, locally and um, external to your local government, okay? Now, what is the Constitution, okay? The The U.S. Constitution was written in 1786 and ratified in 1788, meaning solidified. 
finalized, right? In 1791, the Bill of Rights was also ratified with 10 amendments, okay? Since then, 17 more amendments have been added to the Constitution, all right? The amendments deal with a variety of rights, a variety of rights, ranging from freedom of speech to the right to vote. Now, as we know, black people were not included in the original constitution. There has been a clause added later, which was the 1791 Bill of Rights. Since then, we were added because we were not considered a part of society. We're not considered human. We were not considered (laughs) worthy enough to be protected under the original constitution. So for those of you who claim and speak and love our founding fathers so much, this is why the founding fathers ain't shit to a lot of people because don't even get me started. We're not talking about that. We're going to keep this on a note of just facts, right? Well, that that's a fact as well, but removing my personal emotion from it, this is what it is. Okay. So the constitution of the United States was written in 1787 by 55 delegates at the constitutional convention. The purpose was to revise the weaker articles of the confederation that had held the 13 states together after they gained independence from Britain. Before it could be put in place, it had to be ratified by conventions from each of the 13 states where the delegates argued both for and against the binding document. One of the main arguments against the ratification of the U.S. Constitution was a lack of specified individual rights and liberties. So James Madison drafted a set of amendments to add to the U.S. Constitution if it was ratified. On June 1789, Madison submitted 12 amendments, though only 10 were passed and ratified in 1791 as the Bill of Rights, okay? Since then, 17 more amendments have been passed and ratified by the process laid out in Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, where an amendment is proposed by either a two-thirds vote in Congress or a national convention of two-thirds of the states. Those proposals are then ratified by either three-fourths of the state legislation or by state conventions and three-fourths of the states to become amendments added to the U.S. Constitution. So there are 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution, ranging from personal rights to procedural laws, including history and the lasting impact I'm going to explain to you that they've had on the U.S., okay? So the First Amendment famously protects freedom of speech, okay? It establishes five basic freedoms. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay. So the First Amendment lays out five basic freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, and the freedom to petition the government. Those are things you have the freedom to do. These rights were important to establish because they ensured that individuals could think, speak, and act without fear of being punished for disagreeing with the government, even though we know that people bucket every day. Now, In addition to being arguably one of the most important amendments, the First Amendment is still very much at the center of America's political discourse today because 
People constantly are questioning whether or not Twitter bots have First Amendment rights or whether or not the White House banning a CNN reporter violates the Constitution, right? But that's neither here nor there. The Second Amendment deals with the right to bear arms. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment supports the right to own firearms, though it's been really, 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 really a huge debate whether the Constitution framers only had in mind the military use of guns or if any citizen had a constitutional right to a firearm. This confusion is largely due to the commas in the amendment that are grammatically confusing. So whoever typed this thing up did a number, okay? So it has since one been the most politicized amendments. A lot of political parties, mostly the Republican parties, the conservative parties fight that they have a right to bear arms. Now, what type of um, guns you have a right to bear is what people choose to not be mindful of, I guess. In 2008, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that the US citizens have a constitutional right to keep a loaded handgun at home for self-defense. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote the majority decision and laid out a number of provisions. Nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions, prohibitions of the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. The decision was largely seen as a major win for those who believe the amendment refers to individuals' rights to bear arms. Yes, you have a right to bear arms, but you cannot bear arms on places that prohibit the use of firearms, right? Which is why you might see a lot of people with signs and a lot of people with different um, uh, warnings as you're entering into their buildings. You're not supposed to be able to use firearms in like state capitals where we had people literally, literally protesting this particular uh, mandate for uh, the COVID restrictions in this building that is supposed to be a highly protected building. You're walking in with your firearms threatening the people who make the constitution. But anyway, whatever. They weren't arrested, shot or killed, but anyway. The third amendment prohibits forcing citizens to provide lodging to soldiers. So no, sho- no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. The third amendment prohibits the government from forcing citizens to give lodging, basically making soldiers uh, live with someone, right? Without permission. You, you have to, a person has a right to say, no, I don't want nobody to stand with me. So before the Revolutionary War, Americans were required to give food and lodging to British soldiers as a part of the 1765 Quartering Act. According to the National Constitution Center, the Third Amendment is the least litigated in the Bill of Rights and the Supreme Court has never decided a case based on it. So people really don't fight it. Maybe because people don't want to just go to people's houses um, unnecessarily or whatever. The Fourth Amendment deals with search and seizure. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, house, uh, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. This is very important, especially for our black and brown people to know. You definitely have a right. When you say you know your rights, this is one of the most important rights that you need to know, that you have a right 
to de deny um, search without warrants, okay? Um, it says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So even if someone comes to your door and say they have a warrant to search, you have to verify that on that warrant, it has your address, it has the reason to why, and it shows who they are supposed to be searching for. You cannot just walk up into somebody with some blank piece of paper talking about you got a warrant and it does not solidify or does not specify specifically name what it is you're searching for and who it is that you are supposed to be searching. The fourth amendment prevents the government or police from searching or sieging the homes, belongings, or bodies of citizens without probable cause or a warrant. Okay. One of the most significant impacts of the fourth amendment was in the case of Weeks versus United States in 1914, when the Supreme court decided that evidence taken in violation of the fourth amendment could not be used in court, which is called the exclusionary rule. The Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment is the source of the common phrase, I plead the fifth. So basically, you don't want to um, you don't want to prove yourself guilty by giving an answer. So you plead the fifth. No person shall be held to answer for capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment of indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land of naval forces or in the military, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life's liberty or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So the Fifth Amendment gives people accused of crimes a variety of rights and protections, including the right to a grand jury indictment for felony offenses in federal court. So social media jury, you're not valid. Okay. The restriction on double jeopardy, meaning you cannot be charged twice for the same thing. You can't be put on the on trial for the same crime after being found not guilty. Protection against forced self-incrimination, the guarantee of due process of law, and the prevention of the government taking property privately owned for public use without proper compensation. Meaning if you take something that is mine, you cannot use it for public and not pay me for it. The most significant Supreme Court decision relating to the Fifth Amendment outside of criminal trials, according to the National Constitution Center, was Miranda versus Arizona in 1966, where the Supreme Court decided that the police must give criminal suspects a set of warnings before they can be questioned. This is called their Miranda rights. These rights are in direct relation to the self-incrimination clause of the Fifth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment includes the right to a speedy trial. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury, which we know rarely happens in black and brown cases um, of state and district wherein the crime shall be committed or have been committed, which district shall have been previously asserted by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation to be confronted with the witnesses against him to have compulsory 
compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. For the Sixth Amendment guarantees people accused of a crime receive fair and accurate criminal proceedings, including the right to a speedy public trial by jury from the area where the crime was committed, the right to confront and question witnesses against the accused, the right to subpoena witnesses and have them testify at trial, and the right to a lawyer. Although criminal institutions in America definitely have changed since 1791 and the something like a speedy trial could actually mean years in today's court system, the Sixth Amendment sets a standard for justice and criminal procedures, particularly in specifying the rights of the accused crimes. Now, whether these are followed is a whole nother debate. The Seventh Amendment deals with jury trials for civil cases involving property worth more than $20. So in suits of common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. The Seventh Amendment promises the right to a jury trial for civil cases that involve property worth more than $20, even though Criminal cases that go to trial always have juries. Civil cases rarely do. The Eighth Amendment prevents the government from imposing cruel and unusual punishment on criminal defendants. Now, defendants. Now we know, especially with police brutality, especially with the prison system, we know that this is an amendment that is constantly, constantly broken. The Eighth Amendment is constantly, constantly, constantly broken. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. The Eighth Amendment prevents the federal government from imposing excessive bail and inflicting cruel and unusual punishment on criminal defendants. Defendants, Some, including the American Civil Liberties Union, argue that the death penalty is a violation of the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment. That is absolutely a valid fight, okay? Police brutality, um, all of these things fall up under that, okay? The Ninth Amendment establishes that people have additional rights even if they are not included in the U.S. Constitution. So the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed construed or denied or despised others retained by the people. The Ninth Amendment essentially just clarifies that even though the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights name certain rights, that doesn't mean that people don't have other rights not specifically included in the Constitution. So one of the supporters of the U.S. Constitution, James Wilson, worried that by naming and enumerating specific rights and powers not mentioned would be assumed to belong to the federal government. So the Ninth Amendment makes it clear that is not the case. The Tenth Amendment helps keep the federal government limited. The power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved for the states respectively or to the people. So the Tenth Amendment leaves any powers not specifically assigned to the federal government to each state or to the people. This amendment protects against the possibility of national government assuming powers that have not already been assigned to it and is greatly important to keep the federal government limited as the U.S. Constitution framers intended. The 11th Amendment is the only amendment related to the judicial branch of the government. So the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to to extend to any suit in law or equity commenced or prosecuted against one of the unit's 
um, one of the United States by citizens of another state or by citizens or subjects to any foreign state. So the 11th Amendment prevents federal courts from hearing lawsuits against states, which changes particle of Article 3, um, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. It was passed by Congress on March 4th, 1794 and ratified on February 7th, 1795. The proposal for this amendment was introduced one day after the Supreme Court ruled that an individual could sue a state in federal court in the case of Chisholm versus Georgia, 1793. Today, these lawsuits are tried in state courts. This is also the only amendment related to the judicial branch of the government. The 12th Amendment changed the presidential election process. Okay, pay attention. This is something I need you guys to pay very, very close attention to as well. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state within themselves. They shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president and indistinct ballots the person voted for as vice president. And they shall make distinct list of all persons voted for as president and of all persons voted as vice president and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States directed to the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate shall in the presence of the Senate and House Representatives open all certificates and the votes shall then be counted. Got it? Okay, listen. The person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed and if no person have such majority then from the persons having the highest numbers not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president the house of representatives shall choose immediately by ballot the president but in choosing the president the votes shall be taken by states the representation from each state having one vote, the quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two thirds of the states. And a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. If the House of Representatives shall not choose a president wherever the right of choice shall devolve upon them before the fourth day of March next following, then the vice president shall act as president as in the case of the death or other constitutional disability of the president. The person having the greatest number of votes as vice president shall be the vice president. If such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if no person have a majority, then from the two highest numbers on the list, the Senate shall choose the vice president. A quorum for the purpose shall consist of two thirds of the whole number of senators and a majority of the whole number shall be necessary to a choice. But no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of the president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. 
So the 12th Amendment, which was passed by Congress on December 9th, 1803 and ratified on June 15th, 1804, changed the presidential election process as laid out in Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, fixed several problems that came up because of the development of political parties and how that affected the Electoral College. The 12th Amendment was passed in response to a tie vote in 1800 election between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. However, the 20th Amendment ratified in 1933 changed the dates of presidential terms and congressional sessions. Okay? It's very important also that you guys understand how the president is elected. It doesn't necessarily go by the votes of the people. It also, most importantly, goes by electoral votes, which is in the Senate. The 13th Amendment freed all slaves and indentured servants throughout the United States. Okay, breathe. Drink something. Okay. <clears throat> Section one of the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime Whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That statement alone lets you know that slavery was never, has never been abolished. Okay? So when Kanye said let's abolish the 13th Amendment and folk criticized him, it's because they did not understand the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment definitely does still allow slaves, just in a different tone. The prison system is a form of slavery because they have been convicted, right? Whether the conviction is just or not, they're in prison. Therefore, they have become still enslaved. Section two of the 13th Amendment. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So 13th Amendment passed by Congress on January 31st, 1865 and ratified on December 6th, 1865, abolished slavery, which is a lie, and superseded a part of Article four, Section two of the U.S. Constitution, which set out that fugitive slaves be returned to their owners. Drink something. President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, proclamation which was issued on January 1st, 1863, only freed slaves from the Confederate states that had seceded, which is why Juneteenth is so important because two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, proclamation was put out is when Texans were informed that the slaves within the Confederate state were and had been freed two years prior. <clears throat> the 13th Amendment was able to free all slaves and indentured servants throughout the country. It did not, however, grant black Americans the right to vote. 
So when we're speaking about freedom and you're speaking about an infringement of your rights, especially when it comes to something as putting the health of other people at risk, let's think about the constitution and how unlawful this constitution has been for black and brown people. Even though President Abraham Lincoln, who also owned slaves, declared that the slaves should be free, it only freed the ones in the Confederate States. And it only freed them if it was enforced which is why Texans had no idea they were actually free and had been free for two years. And in addition to them being freed two years later, they still had no rights to vote. The 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment defines what it means to be a citizen of the United States and also protects civil rights. Realizing the 13th Amendment didn't go far enough, the 14th Amendment was passed by Congress on June 13, 1866 and ratified on July 9, 1868. Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Section 2. Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. Excluding Indians not taxed. So Indians were not counted. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial offices, and officers of a state or the members of legislation, therefore, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States are in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime. The basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Section three, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as any executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may by a vote of two thirds of each 
house removes such disability. Section four, the validity of public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions, bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned, but neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States or any claim for the loss of emancipation of any slave, but all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. Reparations, right? Section five. The Congress shall have power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. The 14th Amendment has five sections that include defining citizenship rights, apportionment of representatives, denying public office to those who have participated in insurrection, invalidating Confederate debt, and giving Congress the power to enforce the amendment. Section one is the most important part of this amendment because it grants former slaves citizenship. So mind you, when the Constitution was created and the amendment rights were made, black people were not considered a part of humanity, as I stated in the very beginning. Okay, we weren't considered citizens of the United States, even though we were slaves within it. Okay, so under Section one, it's one of the most important parts of this of this amendment because it grants former slaves citizenship in the United States and guarantees former slaves equal protection and due process, even though we do not get that to this day, because so many who uphold those courts still do not view black people brown people as citizens or worthy citizens of the United States. In one of the most notable cases related to this amendment, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown versus Board of Education 1954 that the racial segregation in public schools violated the 14th Amendment. It was also used to landmark cases like Roe versus Wade in 1973 about abortion and Obergefell versus Hodges 2015 about same-sex marriage. The 15th Amendment deals with the right to vote in the U.S. Section 1, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The 15th Amendment, which was passed by Congress on February 26, 1869 and ratified on February 3rd, 1870, guarantees the right to vote and guarantees the right cannot be denied based on race. Despite this amendment, despite this amendment, discrimination continue in the voting booth, including literacy tests and poll taxes to prevent black Americans from voting until the voting rights of 1965. Voter suppression still remains an issue though to this day. The 16th Amendment deals with taxes. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the the several states and without regard to any census or 
enumeration. The 16th Amendment was passed by Congress on July 2nd, 1909 and ratified on February 3rd, 1913. It gives Congress the power to collect income tax, which changes a part of Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution. This amendment reversed the Pollock versus Foreman's Loan and Trust Company 1895 Supreme Court decision that made a national income tax almost impossible. Okay. The 17th Amendment lays out how U.S. Senators are elected. The Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite, Mercury, requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. When vacancies happen in the representation of any state in the Senate, the executive authority of such state shall issue writs of election to fill such vacancies, provided that the legislator, the legislator of any state may empower the executive thereof to make temporary appointments until the people fill the vacancies by election as the legislature may direct. This amendment shall not be construed as to affect the election or term of any senator chosen before it becomes valid as part of the Constitution. Okay, the 17th Amendment, which was passed by Congress on May 13, 1912 and ratified on April 8, 1913, made it so that U.S. senators would be voted into office by direct elections instead of by state legislators, as set out in Article 1, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution. This is one of the only substantial changes made to the structure of Congress since it was laid out in the original U.S. Constitution. <sighs> Breathe, okay? We have about a few more um, amendments to go through. So what I'm going to do is take a brief break. I'm going to take a brief intermission to pull my thoughts together, um, cleanse my energetic space, and I will be back to give you guys the remaining, the remaining amendments, and um, we will close out this episode, okay? So take a brief break, and I will be right back. Okay, guys, I'm back, and we are on the 18th Amendment. 18th Amendment made the production, transport, and sale of alcohol illegal. Section one, after one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacturer sale or um, transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States in all territories subject to jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. The Congress, section two says the Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Section three, the article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislatures of the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of the submission hereof to the states by the Congress. The 18th Amendment enacted the 
prohibition of manufacturing and selling alcohol beginning one year after the ratification of the amendment. It was passed by Congress on December 18, 1917 and ratified on January 16, 1919. Prohibition was in effect for 13 years before it was repealed in 1933 by the 21st Amendment. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. So, Susan B. Anthony. Mm. So, in addition to having the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, you having to be put in the Constitution as a person who is worthy of being um, acknowledged as a citizen and actually seen as a citizen of the United States and no longer being considered a slave, you still did not, even though it was passed that black people could vote, right? After years of this, you still couldn't vote as a woman, okay? black, white, whatever, you couldn't vote in the United States as a woman. So here we are at the 19th Amendment. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. Before the 19th Amendment existed, it was passed by Congress on June 4th, 1919 and ratified on August 18th, 1920. Susan B. Anthony argued that the 14th Amendment privileges and immunities clause gave women the right to vote since they had been citizens all along. In Minor versus Happersett, 1875, the Supreme Court decided that being citizens alone did not give women the right to vote. So the women's suffrage movement worked to get a U.S. constitutional amendment passed to give women the right to vote. Today, women make a major difference in elections and are running for office themselves. There's still a ways to go for equal representation because women make up 24% of Congress, 27% of state legislators, 18% of governors, 22% of mayors. The 20th Amendment determined the beginning and end of presidential terms and congressional sessions. The 20th Amendment was passed by Congress on March 2nd, 1932 and ratified on January 23rd, 1933. The terms of the president and vice president Section 1 shall end at noon on the 20th day of January and the terms of senators and representatives at noon on the 3rd day of January. Um, Of the years in which such terms would have ended if this article had not been ratified and the terms of their successors shall then begin. Section 2. The Congress shall assemble at least once in every year and such meeting shall begin at noon on the third day of January, unless they shall by law appoint a different day. Section three, if at the time fixed for the beginning of the term of president, the president elect shall have died, the vice president elect shall become president. If a president shall not have been chosen before the time fixed for the beginning of his term, or if the president elect shall have failed to qualify, then the vice president elect shall act as president until a president shall have qualified. And the Congress may by law provide for the case wherein neither a president elect nor a vice president elect shall have qualified, declaring who shall then act as president or the manner in which one 
who is to act shall be selected and such person shall act accordingly until a president or vice president shall have qualified. Section four, the Congress may by law provide for the case of the death of any of the persons from whom the House of Representatives may choose a president wherever the right of choice shall have devolved upon them. And for the case of death of any of the persons from whom the Senate may choose a vice president, wherever the right of choice shall have devolved upon them. Section five, sections one and two shall take effect on the 15th day of October following the ratification of this article. Section six, the article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the constitution by the legislators of three fourths of the several states within seven years from the date of its submission. The 20th Amendment set the beginning and the end of presidential terms and congressional sessions. It also lays out the order of presidential secession, but that order was later altered by the 25th Amendment. In 1937, Franklin D. Roosevelt was the first president to be inaugurated in January and set out by the 20th Amendment instead of in March or in April as George Washington had been. The 21st Amendment repealed prohibition. So section one, the 18th article of amendment of the, to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. Section two, the transportation or importation into any state territory or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. Section three, this article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as amendment to the Constitution by conventions to in the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years from the date of the submission hereof to the states by the Congress. The 21st Amendment repealed prohibition. It was passed by Congress on February 20, 1933 and ratified on December 5, 1933. This is the only amendment that repeals a previous amendment and it is the only amendment that was ratified by the state ratifying conventions as opposed to the legislators of the states. The 22nd Amendment, um, let's see, the 22nd Amendment limits presidential terms to two. Section one, no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. And no person who has had, held the office of president or acted as president for more than two, ter- two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. But this article shall not apply to any person holding the office of president. When this article was proposed by the Congress and shall not prevent any person who may be holding the office of president or acting as president during the term within which this article becomes operative from holding the office of president or acting as president during the remainder of such term. The office section two, the article shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the constitution by the legislators of three fourths of the several states within seven years from the date of its submission to the states by the Congress. The 22nd amendment, which was passed by Congress on March 21st, 1947 and ratified on February 27, 1951, limits presidential terms to two. This is mostly because George Washington decided to retire after just two terms, which set the president 
for the next 150 years of presidents in the United States. The 22nd Amendment was passed out of fear of a tyrannical president. Prior to the passage of this amendment, Franklin D. Roosevelt had been elected to four terms as president serving from 1933 until his death in 1945. The 23rd Amendment allows Washington, D.C. citizens the right to choose electors in presidential elections. Section 1. The district constituting the seat of government of the United States shall appoint in such manner of the of the Congress may direct a number of electors of president and vice president equal to the whole number of senators and representatives in Congress to which the district would be entitled if it were a state. But in no event more than the least populous state, they shall be in addition to those appointed by the states, but they shall be considered for the purposes of the election of president and vice president to be electors appointed by a state and they shall meet in the district and perform such duties as provided by the 12th article of amendment. Section two, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The 23rd amendment was passed by Congress June 16, 1960 and ratified on March 29, 1961. It allowed the citizens of Washington, D.C. to choose electors for presidential elections because as citizens of federal district and not a state, D.C. residents are not citizens of a state. Before this amendment was ratified, D.C. residents were denied the right to vote for federal public officials. Today, D.C. residents are still um, unrepresented in Congress but they have a non-voting delegate to the House of Representatives. And this has actually changed because they have recently passed where DC is now considered a state. So, the 24th Amendment abolished poll taxes which had previously been required to vote in elections. Section one, the right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president for electors for president or vice president or for senator or representative in Congress shall not be denied or abridged by the United States of any state by person or failure to pay any poll tax or other tax. Section two. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The 24th Amendment was passed by Congress on August 27, 1962 and ratified on January 23, 1964. It abolished poll taxes, which had previously been required to vote in elections. When the U.S. Constitution was first ratified, most states allowed only property owners to vote. But as time went on, many states moved to poll taxes. At first, that expanded the right to vote because more citizens could pay the poll tax than proved they were property owners. However, poll taxes were brought back as a way to prevent black Americans from voting until the Voting Rights Acts of 1965. Because remember, black Americans were not able to own anything. The 25th Amendment sets the order of secession for the president and lays out what to do in case of presidential incapacity. So section one, in case of the removal of the president from office or of his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Section two, wherever there is a vacancy in office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. Section three, 
wherever the president transmits to the president pro timor of the senate and the speaker of the house of representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary such powers and duties shall be discharged by the vice president acting as president section four whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments are of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. The vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Thereafter, when the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive department or of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit within four days to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives, their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue, assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session. If the Congress within 21 days after receipt of the latter written declaration, or if Congress is not in session within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, determines by two-thirds vote of both houses that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president otherwise the president shall resume his powers and duties of his office the 25th amendment which was passed by congress on july 6 1965 and ratified on february 10th 1967 sets the order of secession for the president and lays out what to do in the case of presidential incapacity this amendment has only been used three times since it was ratified to relieve presidents from their duties because of physical health. It was initially passed out of fear of presidential secession after John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. The first use of the 25th Amendment was in 1974 when Gerald Ford became president after Richard Nixon's resignation. The second use was in 1985 when Ronald Reagan temporarily handed his presidential powers to Vice President George H.W. Bush during the surgery. George W. Bush invoked the 25th Amendment twice during his presidency presidency to give Vice President Dick Cheney presidential powers while he had routine colonoscopies in 2002 and in 2007. The 26th Amendment allowed 18-year-old citizens to vote. Before the 26th Amendment was ratified, Americans had voted at age of 21. Section 1. The right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to shall to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. Section two, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The 26th Amendment allowed 18 year old 
U.S. citizens to vote and modified Amendment 14, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution. This is the last amendment that deals with voting rights protections. Before 26th Amendment was ratified, Americans voted at age 21. However, during the Vietnam War, men were being drafted from the age of 18, and yet they didn't have the right to vote. So Congress passed the Voting Rights Act that lowered the voting age for all elections at the federal, state, and local level to 18. It was passed by Congress on March 23rd, 1971, and ratified on July 1st, 1971. The Supreme Court held in Oregon versus Mitchell, 1970, that Congress couldn't require state and local governments to lower the voting age. So the 26th Amendment was ratified in order to do that. The 27th Amendment made it so pay raises or decreases for members of Congress can only take effect after the next election. So no law, no law varying the compensation for the services of senators and repre representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. The 27th Amendment, also known as the Congressional Compensation Act of 1789, was the second amendment that James Madison proposed when he brought forward his draft of 12 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. It says that pay raises or decreases from members of Congress can only take effect after the next election. When it was originally proposed in 1789, only six states voted for it to be ratified, including Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Vermont, and Virginia. For 80 years, the proposal was untouched, but Ohio ratified it in 1873 and Wyoming ratified it in 1978. In 1982, a movement to ratify the amendment was started by an undergraduate student to prevent corruption in Congress. By the 90s, the necessary 38 states had ratified the amendment almost 203 years later after it was proposed. It was ratified on May 7, 1992. Now that, my friends, gives you a breakdown of all 27 amendment rights gives you history on those amendment rights and also gives you enough information so that you will understand what your amendment rights based on the constitution actually are. So when you're running around and you're saying things like, this is an infringement of my rights, it's really important for you to know exactly what those rights are, okay? So this is going to conclude today's bonus episode on the 4th of July when America gained its independence but again Juneteenth is when we celebrate black Americans um being free and um that is our independence day okay so wherever however whoever celebrates be safe make sure that you are taking the necessary precautions I wish you nothing but good health and I hope that each and every one of you gained a great perspective, confirmation, information, whatever you want to call it from this particular episode. I love your freaking souls until our next daily dose of energy. Bye.